Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Thais Gibson. If you've ever been in a relationship with someone and felt like you're not on the same page, you say one thing, but your partner hears another. Or after a big fight, you yearn for closeness, but they want to withdraw. Or maybe it's the other way around. Well, we are going to address all of those in today's episode with Thais Gibson, who is a relationship expert that has been recognized by Bloomberg News, Psychology Today, and various other outlets for her revolutionary work in integrated attachment theory. Thais has just published a new book, Learning Love, that was released last December. And as founder of Integrated Attachment Theory, she is changing attachment theory as we know it. She's helped over... 40,000 people in 150 different countries around the world and would love to be a part of helping you relieve your attachment issues, whatever you have. Uh, Thais Gibson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here with you. Uh, I'm excited to have you on because when we look at attachment styles and suicidal behaviors and suicide ideations, there's a strong correlation. Um, I was looking at some research before the episode and insecure attachment and personality uh, uh, dimensions of like self-criticism and, and uh, dependency are a proposed risk factor for suicidal behaviors. Now, there are distinguishing behaviors from ideation, but um, I didn't realize that attachment styles can have such a profound link on not just ideations, but behaviors. Uh, talk to us about the attachment styles and uh, what your book, Learning to Love, is about. Yeah, so if anybody's not familiar with attachment styles, it basically starts by framing out the different attachment styles as a whole. And, and original attachment theory was developed by John Bowlby, and then later Mary Ainsworth came on board. And there's basically four main attachment styles, and every single person has one. <laughs> so there's the securely attached child. And first, this represents roughly 50% of the population. Um, but some recent studies are thinking it's it's less and less. Um, but basically, the securely attached child gets a lot of healthy modeling in childhood. They basically have approach-oriented behaviors from their caregivers. So when they cry, they have their caregivers come towards them, tend to their emotions, um, and as they age throughout their childhood development, they basically see healthy communication and negotiation of needs. An example could be something like a child is crying and it's 9 p.m. and they want to eat candy and the parent won't outright shame the child or get angry with the child for having their need that they have. They will approach that need, say, you know, honey, you'll get a stomach ache if you have candy. I know you want candy. I know candy is important to you. You know, if you eat all your dinner tomorrow, maybe you can have some candy after dinner. So there's this teaching from a very young age, despite how unreasonable the child's need might be, that it's safe to communicate. It's safe to express emotion. It's safe to negotiate about needs. And essentially, this creates this child and parent attachment dynamic where the, the child feels safe around the parent. They feel like they can trust the parent. They feel like they can rely on other people. They feel like they can communicate. And it also instilled the deeper, more inner sense of self-confidence as a result. And so securely attached children as adults have a greater statistical um, likelihood of ending up in healthy and thriving relationships that also last. Now, most people are not insecure, are most uh, not securely attached. So we have three insecurely attached styles and those three insecurely attached styles are number one, are anxious preoccupied. And the anxious child grows up often in a loving home but there can be either a real abandonment that takes place or a perceived abandonment that happens repetitively over time. So an example of this could be a divorce. There's a real abandonment. A parent leaves the home. They're not really around and present in the child's life afterwards. Or it could be perceived abandonment where there's very loving parents and caregivers, but maybe they work a lot and the children are constantly left with the grandparents who might be more cold and withdrawn. And because our subconscious mind is really conditioned and programmed through repetition plus emotion, the repetitive exposure to those types of patterns will often cause the anxiously attached child to keep reliving these feelings of abandonment. So as an adult, 
they become conditioned to fear abandonment because that's so much of where their pain came from in childhood. And they tend to perceive relationships as being very sensitive to, to when somebody might pull away. And they tend to constantly seek after proximity in relationships. And sometimes they will sort of present as adults, these needy or clingy behaviors, these fear-based behaviors, they'll really fear abandonment, rejection, feeling not good enough, feeling alone, excluded. Those are the big core wounds that they bring into relationships. On the very basically opposite end of the attachment continuum, um, there's a dismissive avoidant. And dismissive avoidants generally grow up with some enmeshment, um, but the overarching theme, even with enmeshment sort of attached to that, is um, this theme of childhood emotional neglect. And so a dismissive avoidant grows up in a home where there's usually, you know, sometimes there can be a lot of stability in the home, foods on the table, structures there, you know, so it can be this really kind of covert form of neglect that's taking place. But if a child expresses their emotion, it's like, nope, children should be seen and not heard. Or if a child is you know, sad, the, the parents are not attuned to the children's emotions. And so they're often either rejecting or dismissing the child's emotions. And as a result, the child internalizes that and goes, well, I guess this part of myself is defective. You know, this part of myself isn't worth being seen or heard. And so as an adult, a dismissive avoidant attachment style, they tend to really fear too much closeness because closeness and emotional intimacy entails connection in a space that was always rejected for them growing up as a child. And so we have the dismissive avoidant attachment style who as, as an adult tends to be commitment fearing. They fear being too vulnerable. They fear opening up too much. They fear their own emotions. And they actually, because when we go through neglect as children and we're yearning for connection, a child's mind can't look at a parent and go, my parents are emotionally unavailable. That's why this is happening. Instead, children personalize everything. So instead, the child goes, there must be something wrong with me that I can't get my needs met. And so this child will internalize a lot of shame and they'll have these big shame wounds and they can be very sensitive to being shamed or criticized as adults, even though they're very stoic and, and most people would never know from the outside. And funnily enough, that anxious on one side of the continuum and dismissive on the other side of the continuum often end up together in relationships. The proximity, you know, craving one and the one that's always needing the space. And then last but not least, we have our fearful avoidant attachment style. The fearful avoidant um, is also referred to as disorganized attachment style. And basically the, the fearful avoidant grows up in a household where there can be really nice um, experiences with love and connection, but also really terrifying ones. So a really easy example would be a parent who's an alcoholic, where one day mom comes home, she's very loving, she's she's sober, she's in a great mood, and there's these really nice experiences with love and connection. Another day mom comes home, she's drinking, and she's angry drunk, and she's scary and unpredictable. Another day moms come home, and, and she's only had a few drinks, and she's in an extra good mood, and she's extra warm. Another day, mom's sobering up and she's going through withdrawals and she's in a terrible mood. She's going through a really tough time. And it's like, you never know what you're going to get. Other examples of this could be a tremendous amount of fighting in the home, having a parent with a cluster B personality disorder, for example, narcissistic personality disorder. And basically it's like, you're constantly walking on eggshells, but the conditioning for the child is that they learn to attach through hypervigilance. Their attachment strategies, I have to always read between the lines because I never know who I'm going to get. And they also get conditioned at a subconscious level to, to see competing, to basically have these competing ideas about the same thing, which is love or attachment. It's like love can be a really beautiful thing, but it can be a terrifying thing. And so as adults, these individuals tend to really yearn for connection, but when it gets really close or real, they push it away or they fear it. And they're usually flip-flopping between wanting closeness and pushing it back. And they tend to be very like anxious, fearing abandonment, or you know, more avoidant, fearing being trapped. And they're kind of like a pendulum constantly swinging. And they tend to have a lot more core wounds, fears around betrayal, abandonment, fears of being trapped or helpless or powerless in relational dynamics. Um, and they tend to express more volatile behaviors as a result. So those are the basic four attachments. Well, I, I feel like I'm, I'm the last three you mentioned. I'm, I'm all of them. I'm the anxious, <laughs> dismissive, hypervigilant. Um, it's it's so interesting um, because I've I've noticed areas or times when I feel like I'm moving from one to the next. There are times where I feel very secure in the relationship, and then there are times where I'm I'm a bit anxious and and preoccupied, and other times where I feel powerless and 
I'm warning if I'm going to be betrayed or, um, you know, moving through these. Is that common to kind of move between the different attachment styles? That usually... Or is there a fifth one you haven't mentioned that I... I... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a great that usually represents the fearful avoidant or disorganized attachment style. So usually um, if somebody really resonates with both the anxious and the avoidant and some of the betrayal wounds, that's the fearful avoidant. I was a fearful avoidant. <laughs> I can attest to that big time. Um, and it's because the fearful avoidant really is a mix of anxious and dismissive and basic, basically who you're with in a relationship or how the relationship is going at any given time can polarize you into one side. So for example, I was fearful avoidant before I did a lot of this attachment work. And when I would date anxious people in the past, I would feel more avoidant, right? You'd be like, oh, they're too close all the time. So you're constantly sort of getting that space. But if you were more, um, if you're dating somebody more dismissive, avoidant, then you would polarize into that more anxious side. Oh, they're constantly taking space. So you sort of more move into that proximity space. But the big overarching themes are that you'll tend to experience a lot, a little more emotional volatility. It doesn't have to necessarily be outwardly expressed, but inwardly felt in relationships. And there tends to be a lot more betrayal wounds, like fears of betrayal in the future, or a lot more hypervigilance towards noticing little patterns and incongruencies. Um, but you'll find yourself in different points of life and different relationships being a little more in the anxious or, or avoidant side, but finding that you have both activating behaviors and deactivating behaviors throughout the course of your relationship history. Is the secure attachment style, is that like the ideal attachment style or are there also challenges that come with being secure? Because I would imagine uh, you might be a, more optimistic than you should be or more you might be a bit more naive as to what's going on because you grew up in such a healthy household. It's like, how no one would ever betray me. And then, you know, uh, things it could happen to you because you're just like, well, everybody's nice. My parents were nice. <laughs> Absolutely. I think there's sort of benefits and drawbacks to any attachment style. You know, in some cases, you know, you can look at like the anxious attachment style and see that they can be really lovely and charming and charismatic easily around people because they're so focused on people and their relationships. You know, fearful avoidance and be, tend to be quite fiercely independent and they've, they're forced to grow up fast. So they often make their own way as adults at an early age. Dismissive avoidance tend to be very grounded and stable because they never really let their emotions get too much in the way. Securely attached people can definitely have that. Um, but I would say overall, yes, the securely attached style is sort of like the ultimate space to be. Maybe you don't get as much like depth, you know, because you don't go through hard struggles in the same way from a younger age. So we could definitely make that argument. But if we can become earned secure, right, if we can actually recondition our attachment style, because we're not born with an attachment style, it's conditioned into us through repetition, emotion, and other principles of neuroplasticity over time. So we can recondition our attachment style to arrive there. Um, and, you know, interestingly enough, if you look at some of the, so, so my first like big certification and space I focused on after school was actually in hypnotherapy and wanting to understand like the principles of conditioning and the subconscious and how these things work. And funnily enough, securely attached people tend to be most attracted in relationships to other securely attached people. Because what we're often doing is at a subconscious level, we really tend to be attracted to people who are familiar for how we treat ourselves. So, you know, because the subconscious is really wired for familiarity, it equates familiarity to safety and thus survival. And ultimately, our subconscious mind is very survival oriented. And so what happens is when we are securely attached, you know, when, when we're meeting somebody or we're investing in them, if they're not showing up in a secure way, often securely attached people will be less interested in those relationships. But if you look at other attachment pairings, you'll often see that anxious preoccupieds, they're constantly dismissing the relationship to themselves, right? They're like so externally focused. They're in a dismissive relationship, an avoidant relationship to self. And guess who they tend to be most attracted to? People who also mirror that back to them, right? Mirror back how they treat themselves, people who dismiss them. Um, it's very rare for anxiously attached individuals to end up in relationships with other anxiously attached individuals. And by that same sort of token, you'll see dismissive avoidance. They're very focused on like their own bandwidth, the relationship to themselves, and they're ten they're tending to really like push other people away outside of relationship to self to manage their own emotional bandwidth. 
And so they'll often be attracted to anxious people who mirror that needing to main, maintain proximity and closeness um, back in the relationship to self. So it's interesting because consciously we're often like, oh, that's that's not what I want. I need my space. But then subconsciously we'll end up with people who are mirroring back that kind of dynamic that we have going within us. Yeah, I, I you know, from being honest, it's like there's kind of a control thing for me with that in terms of. I know that um, I tend to withdraw or avoid or can be anxious. And so when I see it um, in other people, then I go, okay, like you said, it's familiar. So I, I know how this dance goes, you know, like I know what I could do in this space and I know what I can't do. And so it's like that to me. And, and you're right. I dated a girl who was securely attached and I recognized it from day one. And I remembered thinking like, oh, this is not going to last long. And sure enough, like as soon as she saw my insecurity, she was like, we're not going to work. <laughs> and, <laughs> it, it was just so, and it was so clean. I was like, it was probably the best breakup I've ever had. She was like, this is not but interestingly enough, I'm curious if this was your experience. This is something that happened to me as when I was fearful of winning is um, you're sometimes like, oh, that's boring. Like, I know that's yes. so hard to say, right. but you're like, oh, it's too stable. Yeah. That's too, like, where's the roller coaster? Where's the excitement? Because your subconscious comfort zone is so familiar with like the ups and downs that we reject things that are not in that space of familiarity. I I was absolutely bored. And and not, you know what? <laughs> Actually, it was, I don't think boredom was the overarching emotion. I think it was a fear of being able to truly express myself. Mm -hmm. I was like, when she sees my crazy, uh, she's gonna bounce. I was like, oh, I can't be, I can't be crazy Leo around her. And it was, it was more of that fear but you're right, the stability of it all, like, you know, like this is, you know, everything was just, we had normal conversations and everything was, you know, it was like the White House and the picket fence. And I was like, <laughs> oh, no way. I was like, when do I get to draw on the walls? You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> for sure and it can be this fear for sure like you said of like being seen right yes, like right. whoa i don't want to let somebody in they won't understand me like we can and and there's all these ways that will deflect what's out of our com our subconscious comfort zone another really big one that happens for people is like it's too good to be true so i can't trust it right. and it's like just going back to the subconscious comfort zone of those trust wounds again like no 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 i just can't trust so it's funny the dance our subconscious mind will do even though our conscious mind might be like no logically like this makes sense this is good for me but our subconscious will find all these ways to reject it and ultimately our subconscious mind is the one running the show yeah can you talk to us more about this earned well uh, well I, I think i want to dig more into the familiarity like we're attracted more to familiarity because i think a lot of people aren't aware of that they go why do i keep going back to the same person over and over again and it's driving them oh. crazy and my thinking is Sometimes you have to just give in to where you are and be with that person and hope that you two can grow into, as you described it, earn security. Is that the idea here? Because it doesn't seem like a relationship between an insecure person and a secure person is going to last long enough for the insecure person to evolve into the earned security. So you almost have to just be like, listen, I... We, we both are crazy. Let's hope we can get to a. <laughs> <laughs> so it's an amazing question. So I think there's a couple sort of like principles that, that um, lead the way first. So, so the conscious mind is responsible for roughly three to 5% of our beliefs, our thoughts, our emotions, and actions on a regular basis. Our subconscious and unconscious collectively are 95 to 97%. The subconscious I talk about the most because it's what we can change. The unconscious, it's very difficult to retrieve memories from or to recondition. So, so, um, we have to imagine like the, the subconscious is kind of running the show. The conscious mind cannot on principle outwill or overpower the subconscious mind. So if anybody's ever had the experience of going, I'm going to change my relationship to anger. I'm not going to get angry anymore. And then the next day they're angry or they go, Oh, I'm going to quit eating chocolate. And then they, they eat chocolate two hours later, or those times that we say we're going to do things, but the follow through really exists at the subconscious level of mind. And so this really plays a crucial role when we think of like earning secure in terms of our attachment behaviors, because we can want to show up more securely. We can have goals or intentions, but like, are we actually doing that? 
So, you know, there's a lot of original research that says, yeah, if you're anxiously attached, just date a secure person. And there, you know, if you're dismissive avoiding data secure person, <laughs> if you're fearful avoiding, good luck. That, that's kind of like originally what a lot of the work was out there. And for me, as somebody who was fearful avoidant, I was like, come on, there's got to be a better way than that. Like, you can't just say, good luck, you're fearful avoidant. Um, so what I found is that it's really about the relationship we have to ourselves first, right? Like we can't have these healthy relational dynamics to people outside of ourselves if we don't do the inner work first. And so there's a few key parts, and this is actually where we created the body of work about integrated attachment theory, because it was how can we recondition the relationship to ourselves using principles of neuroplasticity and reprogramming um, to actually change to become secure, heal our inner relationship, which then allows us to not only be attracted to secure people, um, but also show up in a more secure way. We're not like at the mercy of hoping a securely attached person will want to be with us until we make our way there, right? Because a lot of times that just doesn't work based on principles of attraction. So the the really crucial things that we have to do is number one, we have to actually be able to rewire these painful ideas that we're carrying about love, our core wounds, right? So if we look at like cognitive behavioral therapy, you hear a lot about these ideas of like core wounds or our stories. So you know, what I sort of did is created, take, took cognitive behavioral therapy and just pushed it down to how we can actually um, link it with principles of subconscious reprogramming as someone with a background in hypnotherapy. And so, you know, we can take these core wounds, which are really our baggage we're bringing into relationships for, you know, as a more direct and unkind word. But, you know, if you're anxious, your core wounds are, I'm going to be abandoned. I'm going to be alone. I'm going to be excluded, disliked, rejected, not good enough, unsafe if somebody leaves me. Um, if you're dismissive avoidant, your core wounds are, I am defective. Something's wrong with me. I'll be trapped, helpless, or powerless if I end up with somebody. Um, I'm weak if I express emotion. I, I, I'm incapable of really being able to let somebody in. I'm unsafe to be seen. So, you know, we have to take these ideas and then basically fearful avoidance share both of those. We get to have the most core wounds when we're fearful avoidance. Um, and then also betrayal is a big core wound. And this, this deep idea that I'm unworthy, fearful wounds tend to always have to earn their worth in relationship dynamics. Um, and so, you know, we have to take these core wounds and we have to reprogram them. And when you look at reprogramming, you know, we, you've often heard of like affirmations, right? Affirmations are kind of silly in my opinion, because affirmations are conscious mind, right? Like the, the conscious mind speaks language, um, the subconscious mind's language are emotion and imagery. So if I say to you, whatever you do, don't think of the pink elephant, your conscious mind hears do not, but your subconscious mind runs the show and probably thought of a pink elephant. And so, you know, we have to actually take these, these core wounds that we're experiencing, right? Like, let's say that we're carrying a huge core wound of I am not good enough, right? As the anxious preoccupied, for example, a really common one. Somebody has that big core wound. We can't say I'm good enough, I'm good enough, I'm good enough. It's just conscious mind speaking to conscious mind. The issue is at the subconscious level. You know, the imprinting happened at the subconscious level. So we have to speak in the language of the subconscious mind to recondition our pieces of baggage, basically. And so what we do is neuroplastic research shows that it takes about 21 days to reprogram, which means if we're going to speak to the subconscious mind, we have to find the opposite of the core wound. And for 21 days, we have to come up with something that's the container of emotion and imagery, right? Because that's the language the subconscious speaks. Guess what is the container of emotion and imagery? Well, it's memory. Every memory is just an image and an emotion. So if you say, I'm not good enough and you're trying to reprogram to I am good enough, but speak to your subconscious mind, you have to come up with memories. I felt good enough when I graduated from ABC, when I showed up this way in a relationship, had this conversation, when I was a good friend because I did this. And if you actually were to you know, look at an old memory, like let's say you're thinking of your favorite childhood memory, you'll see the images. You know, oh, I was on the playground. You see the images of the playground. People will start smiling when they when they retell old stories because all the emotion is intact. So what we're trying to do is we need repetition for firing and wiring. We need emotion and imagery to speak to the subconscious mind. A very simplified process for reprogramming that's extremely powerful is to take this old core wound, I'm not good enough, oppose it, I am good enough, 10 memories every day for 21 days, that's it. 
And this has an extremely impactful effect for people um, in terms of their reprogramming. And and so, you know, for me, I was able to reprogram a ton of wounds. I I worked in client practice for about 10 years. We'd see about 95, 97% of the clients who actually showed up to do the work, immense results with being able to leave core wounds behind. And now we have a school with about 31,000 people who've been through our programs with a 97.7% NPS score and people actually detailing out like the reprogramming so useful. So it's a very easy tool. People can sit down and do it right after this um, podcast, but this is how we leave our, our old painful ideas and baggage that comes up as our triggers behind. So that's a huge first piece. And then without going on for too long, um, you know, the other really important things is we have to recondition our relationship to boundaries, right? Anxious tend to have no boundaries all the time. Dismissives have way too many boundaries. They, they struggle to compromise much at all. And fearful avoidance tend to be boundaryless until they get angry. And then they set these huge boundaries from a place of resentment or frustration, which we would make the argument is not good boundary setting. So we have to learn to be assertive in real time in healthy ways. We need to learn our needs in a relationship and learn to communicate them. And if we can get the needs, get the communication and the boundaries, and then reprogram core wounds, we've actually gone into the roots of everything that makes us insecurely attached and instead built insecure roots because those are what securely attached individuals do. And that's where somebody will actually become securely attached. All this resonates. You know, I was reading Robert Sapolsky's book, uh, I think on trauma, why zebras don't get ulcers and, and some other books on traumas. And one of the things that they mentioned that aligns with what you're saying is to go back to the Trump traumatic experience and rewrite the script of the traumatic experience. So if, you know, you had a traumatic experience where someone was abusing you, you would go back to that moment and replay it as them hugging you or you two having dinner, there's something about like replaying or rewiring um, the image. And then over time, what happens as you start to go back to that memory, you'll go back to your the new memory that you're trying to implant versus the old memory of it. And it kind of uh, uh, breaks it up. And, you know, I, I know that what you're saying is um, a, a little different in terms of going back to the moments where you did feel love, when you did feel seen, when you did feel uh, empowered, but, but it, it tracks in terms of like that idea of going back to a moment and using imagery and emotion as a way to, uh, bring to, to at least get you neutral, if not, you know, and energized or feeling empowered. hundred percent. And, and the thing about this reprogramming is for somebody who's like, not, because obviously there can be certain downsides to somebody who's going back to a big trauma when they don't have training or, you know, don't know. And so it's kind of like the safe version, right? It's like, you don't even have to go back into traumatic events. You can just realize, I know I'm carrying this wound of feeling unworthy, you know, right now, because I'm constantly overcompensating in my life, or I know that I'm carrying this wound of feeling abandoned, because I'm constantly fearing that it's one of my biggest triggers. And then we can be like, no, 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 how am I worthy of connection instead of abandonment? How am I worthy of love instead of, you know, and, and instead of being unloved? And so when we do that, we can actually skip the part of having to go to old traumas and just recondition now. And then what actually happens, which is really interesting and really lines up with what you're saying is then when people recall old traumatic memories where those core wounds were born. So those moments where somebody had the core wound of feeling unsafe because they were physically harmed, right? Because they were abused. But then they do a lot of work on why I'm safe now in my life, how it's possible to be safe, where I have safety, how I'm safe in the relationship to myself. And they reprogram that wound. When they actually go go back to old traumatic memories, instead what happens is they go back and that old traumatic memory doesn't trigger them in the same way because that programming of unsafe is no longer a part of their space. So it's like what the book you're talking about is super interesting and obviously makes a ton of sense, but there's like a really safe way you can kind of do it without having to go back into reliving these really hard events, especially if it's difficult to like kind of rewire those things. I love what you're saying. And I actually incorporate that uh, when I'm having ruminating thoughts at night. Um, there are times where I'm going back to some traumatic experience or something that's really intense and upsetting for me. And then I have to remind myself, Leo, you're in bed, you're under the sheets, you're in a safe space. It's not happening to you right now. 
And, you know, then I start to like do a body scan and kind of get into my body instead of being more into my head or in my thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's beautiful. But, but it's, but I have to tell, I have to remind myself that I'm safe at the, in this moment. May I offer a share for, please, for please. So I also had a lot of ruminating thoughts and this was like part of what I was working on. And this was like so helpful for me, which is, so I would do that, right? I would learn because it's kind of like almost like CBT based in a way, but also somatic, right? Because you're getting like into your body and then you're like doing it in the moment. The extra benefit of doing reprogramming as like a part of a morning or evening routine is you're not just equilibrating when the trigger's there. You're doing the daily practice for 21 days, even when you're not triggered, which is actually creating new neural pathways. And if you fire and wire new neural pathways for long enough, old ones atrophy over time, kind of like muscles. Like if you don't work out your bicep. And then what happens is it's not like a reactive I have to do that when that triggers up. It's I did it proactively, repetitively enough for that 21 day period that actually the rumination stopped showing up for me as much at all. And it's not like I, I do this to equilibrate when I'm ruminating. It's that I do it daily ahead of time. And then the rumination doesn't come back because I basically plucked the weed out with the root, right? Like at its root, like I did the core wound reprogramming ahead of time. And for me, that was like a game changer for rumination around stuff. Like, um, I wouldn't go down those thought spirals anymore. And, and, but I had to work on the specific court wounds, whether it was around abandonment or betrayal or unsafety and things like that. Um, so I don't know if that's, that's interesting to you, but that was like, so that changed like so many things for me. No, it is definitely interesting to me. And I love that. And I love this idea of like, I don't have to go back into the traumatic experience or, or into the core wound, I can, uh, I love this idea of being proactive and being on top of it in, in that daily practice. What is the, uh, the uh, science or research or understanding of 21 days? And I ask this because, you know, you, different people are like, you know, do this for 21 days. Some people are like 30 days, three months, uh, you know, next three years. Why 21 days? What's the, what's the value or significance of that? Yeah. So the research about it from a, a hypnotherapy perspective is it takes 21 days to actually create solidified and quite strong new neural networks, as long as you're firing and wiring them repetitively. And so there's, there are different um, sort of schools of thought. So this is how, what we can create in terms of a subconscious um, neural network. This is something that's going to apply to the subconscious mind. There's some further research that says if you're having these deep unconscious. So if you look at like the difference between the subconscious and unconscious, because a lot of people use it interchangeably, but there's like some really important differences. Your subconscious is the, is the space that you can retrieve information from. So for example, I can look back and say, oh yeah, when I was eight years old, I did feel that way. I did have that wound. Um, and I'm able to actually get in touch with feelings from that time. Unconscious is where it's very difficult to actually retrieve anything from unless you're in like a very deep state of hypnosis. Um, and there's other small exceptions to this. Like if you're producing extreme theta brainwaves after a deep meditation, there's some like, you know, different dynamics. But basically the, the rule of thumb is that you're not really retrieving stuff from that period of time. So what can become tricky is that we can do a tremendous amount of subconscious reprogramming that 21 days for wounds that we acquired that we are able to track subconsciously. In other words, things that we can remember, retrieve. Where it can become challenging is let's say, for example, somebody was abandoned at one year old and they don't remember it at all. They don't recollect anything. Well, now we've entered into the realm of the unconscious and it's in that realm of the unconscious that research will show us we need 63 days to truly deepen the neural pathways enough that we're hitting the unconscious mind. And so, you know, if somebody knows that they have those sorts of wounds, it's very valuable to go, you know what, this is going to be boring to do this for 63 days, but there's hacks, you know, there's ways, ways of streamlining that tool that we talked about called auto suggestion, where we can record, you know, 10 pieces of memory for, for, um, into our phone, for example, and listen back to it every day for 63 days in the morning and evening and feel about it, you know, and, and imagine those memories and see them in our, our mind's eye. So we're really looking at those as being the major differences. 21 days, amazing for anything subconscious, 63 for anything unconscious. But again, then we're plucking these weeds out at their root 
And then, you know, we actually see them not coming back. So that's, that's sort of the goal in terms of how to apply the tool. This is a random question, but because you talked about firing and rewiring, I didn't realize I I stumbled over that word sometimes. It's a hard Um, word. (laughs) In in terms of, uh, you know, creating these new neural networks, are, are there sensory inputs or experiences that we can attach to kind of make it more salient? For instance, I'm thinking of like, you know, doing the like, you know, I feel worthy when or uh, I felt good enough when when like while I'm in a like a, a, a cold shower and it's like the adrenaline and the emotion from the cold shower and then saying that out loud 10 times, you know, would that would that speed because I'm, I'm always thinking about how, how do I speed this up? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but is there anything to that of creating an external sensory experience to kind of help the firing and rewiring? Such a good question. It's such a cool discussion. So, so there's a few things. So, um, you know, anything that you can do to really kind of like shut off the prefrontal cortex is going to help you sort of access your subconscious and even unconscious mind more. So, so there's that aspect of when we're doing things like the cold shower. Yes. Like you're, you're going to be in that space for sure in terms of sensory input. Um, the other part of it is anything that's going to help us produce many more alpha and theta brainwaves. Theta is obviously we're in like deep meditation, you know, um, alpha is people are in alpha state often when they're watching TV and and you're like, Bob, Bob. And you're like, but, and Bob's like in the television. (laughs) Well, Bob's in a light state of trance. He's actually in alpha brainwave mode. And so we, we are usually in alpha the first like hour that we wake up the last hour before we go to bed. Um, after we get out of a pretty deep meditation, theta is like, if we're in an extremely deep meditation. Um, and so there's different hacks that we can use like that, where we become what's called more suggestible. And it's actually like, when you go into see a, a hypnotherapist they're trying to put you in a hyper suggestible state through the different like scripts that they'll read to you and imagine walking backwards down the stairs. And, you know, these things are actually designed to get our brain producing those types of brainwaves. So if we produce brainwaves like that, if we hack the system by being first thing in the morning, last thing before bed, we're more in that suggestible state. Um, but we actually have to be able to feel and think, not like playing the recording when we're sleeping. Um, we have to be able to actually be there and feeling the, the emotion imagining the images, seeing them in our mind's eye, but then also hacks, like if we're doing things from a sensory perspective to like shut off our prefrontal cortex as much, it gives us more access to our subconscious mind. And then the very last thing I'll say about the sensory experience too, is like, when we look at the idea of imagery, um, if the more like detailed you can make the images and the more emotion you can pack in there, it makes that 21 or 63 days become a guideline because I've seen, you know, let's say, for example, Bob, right? Let's say Bob is, he's driven in cars his whole life, feels completely safe. One day, God forbid, gets into a car accident. The next day he goes to get back in his car. He's fine, but it totaled his car. It was a big scare. He goes to get back in his car and his handshake. He actually was imprinted immediately. And we can have immediate subconscious imprinting um, based on how intense the emotion is and how much it actually affects our body. Um, Because our body is very intertwined with our subconscious and unconscious mind from a somatic perspective. So if we get into um, imprinting, I've actually sat with people in sessions who had these big wounds, but then saw so much growth come out of their wounds. Like, wow, I felt not good enough, but that's why I'm such a good mother today because I, and they get these really emotionally impactful, you know, benefits and feelings about it. And then they're just really not suffering from that core wound after. So I don't like to tell people that too much because you want to do the actual reprogramming and you never know how much emotion is. is, There's no measurable amount of of how to say, oh, it's enough emotion that we reprogrammed the wound instantly. But the more emotion, the more sensory images in the memory, the sense you have, the visual images, you have all of your five senses contained within the image, um, the more rich you're making that ability to imprint the subconscious in a more immediate way. I love this. You know, earlier you discuss that you know you also um you felt like you were more i think what was it of um avoidant fearful avoidant that was that was more of your attachment style can you describe for us kind of what your childhood was like that kind of informed this uh fearful avoidant uh, attachment style for you Definitely. So um, my parents just were very, they had a lot of challenges with each other. 
Um, so there was a little bit of physical abuse in the home. Um, there was a parent in jail sometimes. Um, and there was a lot of chaos, just a lot of chaos. I saw my parents go through a very, very intense divorce that dragged out for like a couple decades, went to the Supreme Court of Canada, you know, just a lot of like a lot of the chaos. And so, you know, my parents have both done a ton of work on themselves. I mean, I love them both very much. They're in a good space now, but, um, they just really kind of brought out the worst in each other in a really, really tough way. And so what I would see is you never knew what you were going to get. And I was the eldest child of two. So I have a, a much younger sister and I was a very, very sensitive kid, like very sensitive. And I felt like I had to be the protector of my little sister and I was the parentified child. So I was always in the middle. I was always like checking on dad. How's he doing? Is he okay? Oh my gosh. Checking on mom. How's she? Oh my gosh. She's crying. You know, and my childhood was just like that. And so for me, I think I really internalized, like I had really good moments with my parents and they had moments of being very loving when they were their best selves. And then I had really scary moments of seeing them between each other arguing or sometimes taking out some of their frustrations on us as kids and wanting to protect my sister and just being in the, like, I would always come home to a dysregulated nervous system, like just like, you know, stress and fear and concern. And so um, I was very fearful avoidant. Like I was very like had the abandonment wounds and the anxious side, but also had the really big avoidance side. And um, core wound reprogramming was huge for me. It was like so meaningful. Um, and then learning to communicate, have healthy boundaries, understand how to meet my own needs and express them to other people. And then one thing I didn't mention that that is actually huge um, is uh, nervous system regulation, right? Like having a daily breath work or meditation habit because it gets you out of, if you're so used to being in like fight or flight mode and you don't even know anything different, you tend to live your life from that space. And then you make all your decisions from fight, flight, freeze, or fawn, which has its own negative consequences. And, and so getting into a space where you're used to being in parasympathetic or like rest and digest mode, used to being in your body and kind of retraining your body to get there is another huge part specific. If you are fearful avoidant, that's really meaningful for actually healing your attachment style to become secure. Do the different attachment styles show up in different places in our body? really great question. I would say not so much different places in our body, but one thing that the different attachment styles will show up as is you'll see that the different wounds affect the emotions we experience in our body. So, so for example, you'll see like the anxious preoccupied, their emotions they tend to experience the most often are like sadness, loneliness, worry, regret, fear of especially abandonment. Um, and then you'll see dismissive avoidance, their emotions, because they don't want to feel their emotions, right? So they're trying to push them down. So their emotions will finally get expressed through. It's almost the way I think of it is like the emotions squeezing out in these sort of more subtle ways. They'll tend to express more irritation, annoyance, frustration, numbness, um, and, and then fearful avoidance. I think because fearful avoidance tend to sponge a lot of things up in the, in their childhood. This is me. Um, fearful ones until they work on it, you know, will feel a lot of hurt, they'll feel deeply hurt around things, um, and, and often very angry. And sometimes like this feeling of fear kind of in an unsafety, although fearful ones will never say they feel fear. They're like, no, I know how to protect myself, but really <laughs> the moment before they overset boundaries or push people away from anger, there's usually actually a bit of fear going on or really profound hurt underneath that. Wow. Yeah, that's I'm, I think hurt for me definitely is uh, one of the more salient uh, emotions and anger. Well, I was like anger. I remember somebody was like, are you are you angry? And I was like, I wish I was angry. I'm more enraged. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, like, I'm like Hulk. I want to smash everything. Uh, I was like, I, I would love to be angry. That that would be an improvement for me. But I, I go straight from hurt to rage. <laughs> yeah, I totally relate to that. That was like one of the hardest <laughs> things I had to work on because you, it's all there. You And then the rage becomes a protective mechanism. I worked, I actually had to work on anger a lot as a person. Um, and because I really struggled with it. And I know I speak now and people are like, oh, you seem so nice. But I really was angry. But funnily enough, I couldn't actually get a grip on my anger until I realized that anger for me was that I would feel unseen, unheard, powerless because I wasn't setting boundaries um, for so long. And then all of a sudden what would happen is anger when I hadn't set boundaries or shared myself and communicated what I was feeling or needing from close people in my life. 
what would happen is it would build up, build up. And then anger is a subconscious strategy to get all those needs met at once. You get seen because you get loud and you get big, you get heard because again, you're loud. And then you take your power back because you finally say everything that you weren't saying and you were holding back. You do it in an unhealthy way, of course, but that's, you know, the, the strategy nonetheless. And you set a boundary with your anger in real time. And so I realized like, oh, I have to work on root cause. And then rather than trying to control anger or somatically process it in the moment, by working on like boundaries, self-expression, vulnerability, because that was really scary for me as a fearful avoidant, letting myself like get seen and heard and actually like share vulnerable things. Like, hey, it actually hurts me when you do this. Or, hey, I feel insecure sometimes when this happens to actually share those things and then set boundaries in real time and express needs in real time. Funnily enough, as soon as I got good at those things, my anger issues went away. And, uh, yeah, anyways, uh, that, that was a huge work for piece of work for me. So if you're full of wood, it took me a long time to, to really get into the flow of that. Um, you've written a book learning love. Is there anything from the book that we haven't discussed that you think would be of value to the listeners? Um, I would say it's really those main things. Like the whole premise of the book is exactly that. It's like first discover what your attachment style is all the different ways of really understanding what you are. If you can, you know, usually people recognize it quite quickly in real time as they're reading through. And then it's about not just saying, hey, date a secure person so that you can be in a good space because it doesn't work like that for the vast, vast majority of people. The only people that actually kind of works for is if somebody's like mostly secure, but they have a little bit of anxiousness in their attachment style. Yeah, then they'll date a secure and there will be a subconscious comfort zone enough of familiarity while they'll stay in relationship. Um, so it's really about how to recondition your attachment style. And we go through core wounds. We go through needs. We go through um, making sure you can communicate your boundaries, communicate your needs. Um, and then we talk about nervous system regulation, little habits you can add in to get out of chronic sympathetic. And I feel like we covered most of that here today. So I love it. This this was an awesome episode. And uh, I, I love that I still get to learn because I've had people talk about attachment styles and... Uh... And I feel like I've, I've learned so much today. This is like a Harvard uh, uh, classroom lesson right here. Um, Thank you. So much. I'm honored for that. Thank you. Last two questions. Um, well, last uh, penultimate question. I always imagine there's someone listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Thaisa Gibson? Okay, so I love this question. And as, as I said at the beginning, I love that you talk about this. Um, you know what I found? Um, and I actually had my own experience as a teenager of like having suicidal ideation. And, and I've spent a lot of time like wondering about this later in client practice, because people would come and have these discussions. And what I found is that when people are in this moment of like feeling suicidal, it's like, it's funny because if, if somebody, and this is, this sounds like such a silly analogy, but it'll, it has a meaningful impact. If somebody broke into your house in that moment, you'd probably fight for your life. Right. And so, and so, you know, the interesting part is that it's like, so like, what is it? And and what I find is that people want to kill the story of themselves. People want to kill all of those core wounds out that are circulating, 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 circulating. I'm not good enough. I'm unworthy. I'm going to be abandoned. I can't trust anyone. I'm unloved. I don't belong. When we have so many core wounds circulating in our internal dialogue, they produce all these painful thought patterns. And when we're so disempowered there, we're trying to escape from our inner world. And sometimes suicidal ideation or anything down the trajectory of suicide is actually a bit of a subconscious strategy to escape from our internal dialogue and all of those things circulating all day because we get sick and tired of that stuff. And when you combine that with having deeply unmet needs in your life, you don't know what your needs are. You don't know how to get them met. You're in learned helplessness. We become hopeless. So if somebody is going through and if you could watch their internal world, if it was all mean, angry, internal dialogue towards themselves, I mean, listen, if somebody's following you around 24 seven, telling you all these painful things that you're not good enough, you're unworthy, you're unloved, you're all these things all day long, you would want to hurt those people. You'd be like, get out of my freaking space. And then when on top of that, you feel disempowered, you don't feel like you can get your needs met in your life. It feels like what life becomes not worth living. And so what I found to be so meaningful in terms of actually healing some of that stuff is to start by using that tool we talked about, start by using auto-suggestion because when we change our core wounds, they change our thoughts, right? So like if I'm feeling really not good enough, 
throughout my day and my dialogue is like, I'm not interesting enough. I'm not intelligent enough. I'm not attractive enough. I'm not all the enoughs, but the roots, the weed, the roots, the weeds root is at, I am not good enough. And so when we reprogram the wounds, the internal dialogue changes, interestingly enough, as well as if you watch our beliefs tend to create thought patterns, I'm not good enough. We'll create, I'm not interesting, intelligent, pretty enough, whatever it is enough. How do we feel when we think those thoughts? We feel like crap. We feel sad. We feel depleted. Our feelings, our actual emotions are made up of neurochemical reactions. So we're not getting our serotonin and dopamine fix, right? We're getting, you know, more norepinephrine, more cortisol when we're thinking and feeling those things. So when we change our core wounds, it actually has the power to impact our internal dialogue and our thoughts, how we feel emotionally. And then really crazy is that um, neuroscience, a neuroscientist named Antonio Damasio, I think it was in 2008, um, he talked about how every single decision we make, period, is based on emotion. So even people who are like, no, I'm a very logical, rational thinker, they make emotionally based decisions at the tipping point, and then they just quickly rationalize or justify their decisions through logic. And so if we change, I use this acronym, BTEA, our beliefs create thoughts, which create emotions, which create our actions. If we reprogram our beliefs, our thoughts change, our emotions, and thus our neurochemistry is impacted and the actions we take on a daily basis change. And so I think that when we're feeling so down, starting to reprogram our internal dial, our, our core wounds will change our internal dialogue and what we're trying to escape from. And when we learn what our needs are and take some time to be like, well, what, what do I need from my life? What do I want? And we find little habits and strategies to honor those needs in small ways that actually helps us feel like we have a sense of empowerment over our lives again. And those two things can be really, really meaningful um, in terms of like how we live our lives and, and basically what happens next. Uh, I love that. And last question, what are you looking forward to in the next 24 hours? Ooh, um, in the next 24 hours, I am looking forward to, I'm trying to think what day it is. Tonight I teach um, uh, trading all about integrated attachment theory. So I'm really looking forward to that. That's always like really, really fun. And I love sharing and like talking and connecting with people. So I'm really excited for that. And then I'm going to play tennis with my husband after that, which I <laughs> love. I love playing tennis. I'm, I, I'm lucky it's a nice day out here. Um, and I have another podcast conversation tomorrow and I love connecting with people like yourself and chatting and sharing. So I would say all of those things, including what we're doing right now. That's awesome. I'm glad that you're playing tennis and you haven't, uh, you know, hopped on the pickleball bandwagon. Oh my gosh. <laughs> There's a lot of pickleballers right down the street from here. Taking up <laughs> valuable so tennis, uh, uh, ball court. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Those infiltrators. <laughs> Uh, well, Tyce Gibson, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, check out our book, Learning Love. Um, thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you calling to get help. Call the 988 or any of the other 800 numbers that are listed. You can chat, talk, text. You can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one -on -one coaching with yours truly. Uh, where can they work with you if they want to work with you, Tyce Gibson? Where can they reach out to you? Yeah, so we have um, at personaldevelopmentschool.com um, all of our information on our website there. And uh, that's the best space to reach out, connect with whatever, all the different sort of resources we have going on. Thank you for joining us. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Thais Gibson. Thank you so much.